welcome to This Week in Video Games, episode 118. My name is Tom Kershaw, and this is a podcast all about the world of video games. Well, this week I've been checking out Hi-Fi Rush, a surprise new game coming from Tango Gameworks this week, and Goldeneye 007 also made its long-awaited return. Plus, it's got online multiplayer too, so I'm going to be checking that one out. I'm also going to recap the Xbox Developer Direct, which was held earlier this week letting us know about some major titles coming to Xbox in the first half of 2023. Well, all that and more, so it is a busy show, and let's get to it! Welcome to the show, everyone. I hope you're well and you're having a good week. Yeah, I'm good this week, and we have nearly made it. It is nearly the end of January, and I don't know about you, but I'm glad to see the back of January. It's cold, it's wet, it's dark, and just roll on spring, you know. But we've got a busy few weeks of gaming coming up as we're getting into the season where the developers are coming out of their winter hibernation and they are starting to release some games. Well, this week, Xbox were back with a new format showcase called the Developer Direct, where they shone the light on four games and included developer interviews as well as some gameplay highlights. So we got a better look at Forza Motorsport, Minecraft Legends, Redfall, Elder Scrolls Online, plus one or two surprises there as well. Well, as well as looking back, today I'm going to be looking ahead to one of my most anticipated games of 2023, and that is Sea of Stars. This one is a 16-bit style RPG. It's coming really, really soon from the creators of Moonlighter, and this is one of my most anticipated games of the year, as I just said. It looks very much like Final Fantasy VI or Chrono Trigger, and stay tuned to later in the show, we're going to be rounding everything we know about Sea of Stars. Well, before we get into it today, it'd be great if you could leave a review over there on Apple Podcasts. Really helps the podcast get some more eyes on it. I do have a link in the podcast description or the show notes. So if you like the show and you want to leave a review, I would really, really appreciate it. Plus, I'll read out that review on a future episode of the podcast. Well, this week in video games is also powered by Patreon, and you can check out the right tier for you over there on patreon.com forward slash this week in video games. You know, tiers start at only $3 per month, which is less than a cup of coffee. So head on over to patreon.com forward slash this week in video games and find the right tier for you today. Well, that is it for my waffly intro, so let's get into what I've been playing this week. Well, this week has all been about surprise releases. So Hi-Fi Rush was released during the Xbox Developer Direct earlier this week, which was a great surprise, as shadow dropping titles is always fun, and especially good for this title, given it makes such a great first impression. Well, then we had a very short notice announcement that GoldenEye 007 would be releasing. That announcement was on Thursday, and the game came out Friday, so I just had to play that one. I'm going to be giving my first impressions on Hi-Fi Rush, as well as reviewing GoldenEye on the Nintendo Switch. Well, I've also been playing Fortnite Chapter 4 with loads of new updates and improvements, so I'll get into that as well later on. Well, first of all today, let's dive into my first impressions of Hi-Fi Rush. Well, Tango Gameworks surprised dropped their new game during the recent Xbox Developer Direct. This one is a rhythm adventure available on Xbox PC and also on Game Pass 2. Well, in Hi-Fi Rush, you play as Chai, an aspiring rock star. Plus, he's got a sidekick cat as well called 808. Now, this one is a different look for Tango Gameworks. The most recent releases include The Evil Within and Ghostwire Tokyo. Now, this one is definitely much more upbeat, colourful, and some might say even more fun. Well, the game immediately gives off Jet Set Radio vibes where you lay the beat down on robots to the music with your guitar. The environment itself pulses with the music and the whole world following along to the beat. And the beat matching battle mechanics, they're not compulsory. You you will be happy to hear as rhythm games aren't really for everybody. But if you do want to get into things, then you can jump, you can swing, you can smash all along to the background beats. Now, smash in time with the music and you get additional flourishes of music and also additional points as well. As you play through the game, Chai teams up with new allies who add new moves into the mix. Now, this expands the overall combos you can inflict onto your enemies. The soundtrack is pretty great too, with tracks from Nine Inch Nails, The Black Keys, Prodigy, Wolfgang Gartner, and also the Joy Formidable. A Hi-Fi Rush is a colourful action game similar in part to Devil May Cry, and also Bayonetta as well, but you've got that rhythm element. The whole world around you moves to the beat, reinforcing the rhythm. However, it is not essential by any means. You could probably 
get through the game just by smashing the X button, but you can have more fun if you get into that rhythm. Yeah, the game makes a really, really good first impression, much like it did during that Xbox Developer Direct. The art direction is one of the main catalysts for this, but getting to the game and the characters really, really bring it to life. So Chai, the main character, he's silly but likeable. 808 is a good sidekick mascot. Now, it's similar to cartoon animation, much like Into the Spider-Verse, where the game's animated at a lower frame rate to mimic hand-drawn, cell-shaded animation. Well, the rhythm element, as I mentioned before, isn't too obtuse. You know, other games that have come before this one, like I think, you know, maybe something like Cadence of Hyrule, that really wedded you to the rhythm elements. Hi-Fi Rush doesn't go down this path, and while you are nudged in that direction, it is by no means essential. Combat is fun, using a combination of light and heavy attacks, and then having to time the button with two circles to fulfill a nice combo at the end. As you progress through the game, the combos, the enemies, and the encounters get more difficult and complex but the game does a really good job of bringing you along for the ride, teaching you slowly but surely through an in-depth tutorial, which, to be honest, takes up most of the opening hour of the game. Now, other characters then join the party and bring their own weapons to improve the action, including a grappling hook and other special abilities, and also a parry system as well. So Hi-Fi Rush was definitely the highlight of the Xbox Developer Direct, and the fact that it could be played immediately after the show, well, that was a real high point. Now, shadow dropping games always makes a showcase more exciting, and the fact that this one was a semi-surprise makes it even better. In terms of reception, so far it appears to be going very well. Now, so far it's been awarded very positive reviews on Steam. There's 300 reviews so far with an average of very positive, and the user reviews are so good, one user even asks if Microsoft silently dropped the Game of the Year 2023 while another user described this as Guitar Hero blended with Devil May Cry. Now, as well as the good reviews, it's also selling well via Steam. It's currently at number 7 on the Steam sale charts, meaning plenty of people are paying full price for this game, even though it's on Xbox Game Pass. Well, if you like the look and the sound of Hi-Fi Rush, well, it's available now on Xbox consoles and PC via Steam or the Microsoft Store. And as I said before, it's available on Xbox Game Pass. Well, the game was developed by Tango Gameworks. It was published by Bethesda. It's available for PC, Xbox, and Game Pass. And originally, it was released on the 25th of January, 2023. Well, that is it for the moment for Hi-Fi Rush. Really, really exciting game. Really, really good fun. So it is quite simple to get in there, but there's plenty of depth to get into as well. So really, really good fun. Definitely recommend you try that one out. Well, that was a big surprise earlier on in the week, but that wasn't all of the surprises earlier this week. We had another surprise. This one was released on the Xbox and also Nintendo Switch. This one is a classic from 1997. This one is GoldenEye 007. Well, GoldenEye 007 has finally arrived on Nintendo Switch and Xbox Game Pass 26 years after it quickly became one of the best first-person shooters on consoles. This was one of the original split-screen first-person shooters bringing together folks on couch co-op and laid the groundwork for other classics like Halo and Call of Duty to take that genre forward. Well, it's back, plus the Nintendo Switch has online multiplayer, so today I'm going to dive into all the details. Well, GoldenEye was arguably many people's favourite Nintendo 64 game, and one of the really good adaptations from movies. Now, many Bond games have come and gone since, and not many have lived up to the high bar set by GoldenEye in 1997. Gameplay, graphics, online multiplayer, you know, they've all evolved with dramatic speed since then. So would GoldenEye still hold up today, or would it just be a quick trip down memory lane and then it would be done? Well, immediately when you boot up the game, the Nintendo logo and the title screen music definitely bring back a lot of memories. You know, jumping back into the game, the graphics and the control scheme immediately jump out, and not really for good reasons. The N64 was all about its polygon graphics, and the Nintendo Switch stays pretty true to the original. You know, back in the day, this was a groundbreaking title, but the textures, the colour palette, and the low polygon characters, well, yes, they do still have some charm, but they don't really hold a candle to games today. You know, it is a smooth game to play in terms of feel, albeit with a control scheme that feels very counterintuitive. You know, unless you've got the Nintendo 64 controller for Nintendo Switch, it is going to feel a little bit wobbly to control when you first get going. 
is interesting. One of the differences between the Nintendo Switch version and the Xbox version, Nintendo Switch stays pretty true to the original. It's got that original control scheme, and it has online multiplayer, whereas the Xbox version on Xbox Game Pass for consoles, well, that has slightly updated visuals, and also they modernise the control scheme, and that, to be honest, is much better. So on Nintendo Switch, you have to play through the first level three times to get hand of the controller mapping to the Nintendo Switch Pro controller. You know, while nearly all modern shooters use dual analog stick control schemes, you know, here you control the movement with the left stick and the camera with the right stick to a certain extent. Mainly, all the controls are done on the left stick. So if you've played a modern shooter like Call of Duty, Destiny, Halo, you know, anything like Apex Legends, just, just name your first person shooter, it does feel very, very strange indeed. You've got shooting is on the left trigger, when normally it'd be on the right trigger, plus you've got a few action buttons like reload, open doors, you know, that kind of thing. What I would say is give yourself a moment to get orientated with the controls, especially before you jump into multiplayer. Well, GoldenEye 007 includes campaign and multiplayer if you are on Nintendo Switch. The campaign is really, really good fun, following the plot of the movie pretty much spot on. The levels are fairly open, meaning you can explore, and also the difficulty options can be tweaked if you're finding it a little bit tough to get through the levels. Difficulty isn't just about enemies and damage either. You've got extra objectives thrown in there if you're on the harder difficulty, adding an extra dimension to the game. Yeah, multiplayer is where this game shone for so many players back in the 90s. This was before everyone had super fast internet in their home, so if you wanted to play multiplayer back then, you literally had to go around someone's house and play PvP on the couch next to them. So the four-player split screen remains here, and it is still really, really good fun. Multiplayer has five modes, all with good variation and unique gameplay mechanics. So normal is the standard deathmatch, player versus player, then you've got You Only Live Twice mode, where players have two lives before being eliminated from the match, and you've also got License to Kill, meaning one-shot kill. The Living Daylight is kind of like Capture the Flag, plus you've got Man with the Golden Gun. So you've got one golden gun on the map, and this is best for one-shot kills. And once you've got that golden gun, other players have to kill you to get their hands on the golden gun. This all leads to some really, really exciting gameplay, often with other players ganging up on the golden gun character. So together with the various game modes, there's plenty of stages, and there's also a decent roster of characters from the game as well. Compared to modern shooters, it is all fairly basic, but you have to remember, this was one of the first, and it set the table for arena shooters that would go on to dominate for the next 20 years in gaming. GoldenEye 007 is available for the Nintendo 64 Switch Online mode, and you have to have access to the Nintendo Switch Online, plus that expansion pass as well. Nintendo continues to put decent benefits into that expansion pass, and access to GoldenEye will no doubt motivate many to either take up a subscription or renew. So I played GoldenEye a lot back in the day, and I've played arena and campaign shooters ever since. Now those games have come a long way since 1997, and yes, it is a little bit tough to go back to GoldenEye at first, but once you get your head wrapped around the control scheme, then it becomes much easier, and soon it becomes second nature. But if you can get your hands on an N64 controller for Nintendo Switch, that is likely going to be the best way to play. If not, I would recommend a little bit of practice. Now, Goldeneye was never going to be as fun as it was back in the day, but it is a faithful recreation. This is something that fans have been wanting for years, and now we've got one of the best N64 games you know, back in our virtual collection. So if you can see past the graphics, the wonky controls, you're going to see why this was a huge hit for Rare back in 1997, and why it laid the groundwork for many games that came after it. It's smooth, it's got some great moments of action, and the multiplayer still has the power to take your breath away with its frantic fun. Especially if you're playing with the Golden Gun. Now, personally, I love it, and I think you should check it out. Well, that is it for now for GoldenEye 007. That was a real surprise this week when that one got dropped on Nintendo Switch and Xbox Game Pass. I think if you want to go for the classic recreation and stay true to the N64 original, Nintendo Switch is probably your best bet, although if you want a few modern upgrades then you can get it on Xbox Game Pass. Now, either way, it's great to have GoldenEye 007 back in our collections. Well that is it for now for GoldenEye 007, but next up, let's have a look at the Xbox Developer Direct. Well, Xbox kicked off 2023 in style this week, 
with their first Xbox Developer Direct. This one is a new format show showcasing not only gameplay, but the developers too, and ahead of time, Xbox set expectations saying they'd only be showing off a select number of games, including Minecraft Legends, Forza Motorsport Redfall, and The Elder Scrolls Online. Well, today I'm going to round up everything we saw at that first Xbox Developer Direct. Okay, without further delay, let's dive right into the action and start off with Minecraft Legends. So first showed off last year, Microsoft showed off their latest spin-off from the highly popular franchise, and that is Minecraft Legends. Advertised as an action strategy game, initially that had fans scratching their head as to what the gameplay would be like. Well, Legends is going to have a narrative co-op mode as well as PvP, and this is really similar to other RTS games like Age of Empires, albeit with that familiar Minecraft charm. You know, in PvP it's cross-platform with up to eight players across two teams, and each team's objective is to destroy their opponent's base all while building up their own defences, and PvP arenas are procedurally generated and PvE enemy piglins, where they're also trying to knock down your base and cause a whole load of trouble as well. Well, earlier on this week, the developers spoke to Eurogamer and they said, We targeted a 20 to 30 minute game experience, but because it is a procedurally generated world, that will change based on the bespoke world that is created, the teams that are in it, and also people's strategy as well. That was said by the executive producer, Lee Pedersen. And also, Lee went on to say, but that is what we're aiming for. You know, there is a progressive experience, so the piglins are going to ramp up later on in the game, and there's more complexity the further you may go to help shape that time frame. Well, Minecraft Legends is set for release on PC, PlayStation 4 and 5, Xbox One, Xbox Series S and X on the 18th of April, 2023. Well, next up we had Turn 10 showing off Forza Motorsport, this one is a hyper-realistic racer, running at 60 FPS with 4K and ray tracing on Xbox Series X. Gameplay looks really, really good, and everything you'd expect from a realistic racing sim. Now, focusing on realism, including the dirt build-up on the car, great audio, dynamic time of day, and loads more as well. Cars have more realistic physical behaviour through their suspension and also the exhaust mechanics. Now, we're going to have access to more than 500 cars to collect and race, including 100 new cars added to the game. We've also got 800 unique upgrades available for the huge array of vehicles. You know, real-life car paint has been captured using a Spectra photometer, allowing for developers to paint models that have realistic light responses. The damage and dirt buildup is also simulated as you race. One surprising thing about this presentation was there was no firm release date. After the show, Jeff Keighley announced it would be out before the end of June, but that video presentation said it was still coming in 2023. That was notable and also slightly worrying as well. Well, next up we had the surprise announcement about Hi-Fi Rush. This game was leaked, you know, just before the showcase. However, it was still a highlight of the whole presentation, with the Evil Within developers showing off their new rhythm action game. We play as an aspiring rock star with a robot arm, where you can time attacks smashing a guitar at the same time with the music. And this one is colourful, it's got a unique style similar to Jet Set Radio and also Sunset Overdrive as well. Now, it looks like great fun, plus it's available to play right now on Xbox Game Pass. Well, next up we've got the Elder Scrolls Online Necrom. So the Elder Scrolls have got their new expansion Necrom. We've got a new class, the Arcanist, plus new adventures in Morrowind. So we're going to be introduced to a new story called Shadow Over Morrowind. And we're going to be visiting a new area of the Dark Elf home, helping out the Prince Mora. Now, he was from Skyrim's Dragonborn DLC, a giant eyeball guy living in a fortress of banned books. I think the most exciting part of the new story is access to this new Arcanist class, which is the first new class since 2019. Well, earlier on this week, the developers spoke to IGN and they said, You know, our game is super easy to pick up and put down. As a brand new player, I could play with someone who's been playing for seven years and we could both make meaningful progress on our characters without having to grind through seven years of content. You know, it's part of our DNA, and it has been for a very, very long time. We see it in our player population cycles. You know, We've got quarterly cadences where we see a big spike, and then people go to play something else. Then we release something, and you've got that huge spike again. That's the model we've adopted and embraced, and it's been really, really successful for us. Well, this one looks really, really cool, and it's coming on the 5th of June, 2023. 
Well, finally, we've got Redfall and Arcane were back to talk about their open-world sandbox FPS, where we all take on vampires. So Arcane described this as their most ambitious project ever in their biggest world. So we could team up with up to four players and take on story missions, also public events. This one has looter-shooter elements in what looks to be somewhere cross between Destiny and Left 4 Dead. The gameplay we saw was HUDless, which looked very good, plus we also got a quick look at some of the skill trees, which reminded me of Outriders, or perhaps God of War. It's a circular-style skill tree with nodes. As you progress through the game, you can open up various buffs to help you take down the hordes of vampires. So we saw gameplay of players taking on a variety of vampires, including a shroud, which cloaks the arena in darkness. So if you're familiar with a Destiny wizard, then you know what I'm talking about. We also saw a little bit of the story missions with players wielding an array of weapons. We also got a brief look at the weapons and the gunplay, which, to be honest, I'm still not really sold on those shooting mechanics that we saw. These types of games, they're all about the loot and the gun feel to me, and they are releasing this in a very, very competitive environment. So we've got the story campaign, side missions, plus you can work your way towards the central heart of the zone when you're trying to get rid of the vampires. Then you have to extract yourself against the clock. And it all sounds really interesting, although with these open-world looter-shooter games, hopefully Arcane has plenty of content in their pockets because the community are going to get through this very, very quickly. Well, finally, we got that release date for Redfall, and this one is coming out on the 2nd of May, 2023. Well, that is it for now for the Xbox Developer Direct. So some really exciting announcements in there. Really, really good to see Xbox setting out their stall for 2023. Although it was a little bit worrying about Forza Motorsport not giving us a firm release date. This showcase was all about the developers. It was all about the gameplay. And I think to bring this one home, really, they had to include their release dates there as well. But looking on the positive note, we did get release dates for Redfall, Minecraft Legends and The Elder Scrolls Online. And also we got that surprise release of Hi-Fi Rush. Well, that is it for now for the Xbox Developer Direct. But next up, let's have a look at the all-platform charts. Okay, at number 10 this week, we've got Pokemon Scarlet. At number 9 this week, it's Animal Crossing New Horizons. At number 8, we've got Minecraft. And at number 7, we've got Nintendo Switch Sports. At number 6, we've got Pokemon Violet, which seems to be ever more popular than Scarlet. Then at number 5, we've got Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2. Then at number 4, we've got Mario Kart 8 Deluxe. Then at number 3, we've got God of War Ragnarok. Back in at number 2, we've got FIFA 23. And then still holding that number one, we've got Fire Emblem Engage. Well, Nintendo doing really, really well there with the top ten. So we've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven entries in the top ten are held by Nintendo games. So 70% of the ten most popular games in the UK right now are held by Nintendo. So Nintendo just absolutely dominating the charts. It's only God of War Ragnarok, FIFA 23 and Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2 that aren't Nintendo titles. We can see why Nintendo aren't about to bring out a new Nintendo Switch anytime soon. Absolutely dominating the charts. Well, that is it for now for the all-platform charts, but next up, let's have a look ahead. This is one of my most anticipated games for 2023. This is from the studio that brought us The Messenger. This is Sea of Stars. Well, Sea of Stars is an old-school 16-bit RPG from the team that brought us The Messenger. You know, that is Sabotage Studio. This one looks like an homage to some of the best RPGs from a bygone era, like Final Fantasy VI and Chrono Trigger. It's up there, high on my list of most anticipated games for 2023. And today, I'm going to round up everything that we know so far. Well, the game started out as a Kickstarter project back in 2020, and to the surprise of the team, it was completely funded in a matter of seven hours. Sea of Stars immediately found a following, and then the hype levels turned up to 10 when Sea of Stars was featured during an indie direct from Nintendo in December 2021. Well, Sea of Stars doesn't have a set release date just yet, just a rough release window of 2023 at the moment, so it's possible it will get pushed back to 2024. However, being optimistic, I'm hopeful that we're going to see this game later on this year. Well, to support that, in the Sea of Stars Discord, the team did update fans with a small snippet of text recently saying, keeping in mind our two main priorities, quality of life for our team and quality of the finished game, 
we can now confirm that Sea of Stars will be released in 2023. And the post went on to thank fans for their support so far, but they gave no further specifics related to the release date. There's plenty of supporting information out there related to Sea of Stars, so you can head on over to the Sabotage Studio on YouTube, and you're going to see a wealth of videos with trailers, short snippets, and also behind-the-scenes looks. There's plenty of smaller clips that look at the environment and also the gameplay elements as well. This is a departure from the gameplay found in The Messenger. That was a dungeon crawler slash shop management game, and this one's going to be an old-school turn-based RPG, very similar to the early Final Fantasy games. Now, players control three characters with a range of attacks, skills and combos between them to take out their enemies. Now, combat is a big focus for Sea of Stars, with many of the gameplay snippets from Sabotage Studios focusing on combat moves and also combinations as well. So in total, we are set to have six playable characters with their own unique skills and abilities. Now, gameplay is going to stay true to old school RPGs and it's turn-based without time limits. This allows players to take it at their own pace, plus we're not going to get random encounters either, meaning every battle is going to be deliberate. Timed hits are also going to feature with Sabotage Studios, allowing players to sync their actions to the animations in order to deal more damage. We've also got the combo system as well, that promises to be rich too with live mana, created from an attack getting incorporated back into your attacks for extra damage. There's also a lock system which allows players to weaken enemies by dealing certain elemental damage as well. Now, sea of Stars is set in the same world as The Messenger, albeit this one being a prequel. The graphics look gorgeous, which definitely looks similar to the Super Nintendo, but they do appear to be enhanced. Well, the game also includes music from legendary Japanese composer Yasunori Mitsuda. Now, he's got credits on Chrono Trigger, Super Smash Bros. Brawl, Kid Icarus Uprising, Xenoblade Chronicles 1, 2 and 3, so that is quite a CV. And Sabotage Studios have proved they can pull off fantastic retro games with The Messenger. And Sea of Stars is looking to turn it up a notch with great artwork, amazing music, and hopefully fantastic RPG turn-based gameplay. Well, Sea of Stars is set for release on the PlayStation 4, PlayStation 5, and Nintendo Switch and PC. And that is coming later in 2023. Well, that is it for now for Sea of Stars. But next up, I've been jumping back into Fortnite. Let's check out Fortnite Chapter 4. Well, Fortnite Chapter 4 has been out for some time, but being a casual Fortnite player, I've only just got round to the latest update, which is Chapter 4. There's plenty to dive into today. I'm going to round up all the new features to check out in Fortnite. Well, to kick things off, we've got a new map, new gameplay mechanics including a motorcycle, plus loads of new weapons as well. New weapons include a tactical pistol and a red-eye assault rifle, which allows you to aim down sights, plus a couple of new shotguns and two new legendary weapons. Yeah, one big new addition is the shockwave hammer. That's a new melee weapon, which you can use it for traversal as well around the map. So for example, you can smash a few opponents, then you can smash the floor to bounce away. You know, the Excalibur rifle is another new addition. This one is a gun that allows you to shoot swords. Now, it sounds like something out of Borderlands. You can shoot the swords directly at your opponents, or you can shoot them into the ground and they explode after a few seconds. Now, it's somewhere between a sticky grenade and a grenade launcher. You know, a massive feature of the latest chapter is the new map. So we've got nine new points of interest on the map, mostly new. This doesn't include the classic locations like Tilted Towers or Greasy Grove. Well, first of all, we've got the Autumn Biome, that is west and the northwest of the map. So we've got Breakwater Bay, the Citadel, Anvil Square, and Shattered Slabs. Then we've got a Summer Biome, so south and southeast of the map. That's Frenzy Fields, Faulted Splits, and Slappy Shores. Then we've got the Winter Biome, this one is covered in snow. That is north and in the northeast. So we've got Lonely Labs, Brutal Bastion, and that is all of the new areas on the... And that is all the new areas rounded up on the map. Well, there's a heavy medieval theme with the new chapter, and this is most likely down to Geralt of Rivia being one of the major skins this season. Well, reality augments are a new mechanic found in Chapter 4, and they become available as you play, and also you get a couple of different options as well. Plus, you can re-roll if you don't like the options you are given. So they give you small perks and buffs that could help you if you get into big trouble, plus the augments stack throughout the match. So we've got the augments like this, so light fingers, 
So it makes your weapons using light ammo reload faster. We've got Mechanical Archer. So it gives you a Mechanical Explosive Bow and Mechanical Shotwave Bow. We've got Aerialist, so grants your glider redeploy for the rest of the match. We've got Supercharge, so your vehicles won't consume fuel and they have increased health. We've got Soaring Sprint, so while sprinting, you're going to be able to jump much higher. And you can also jump with lower gravity as well. We've also got new challenges similar to the daily and the weekly challenges. Plus we've got new explorer quests. And they include land on the new island, visit the citadel, anvil square, shattered slabs, search the oathbound chests, you know, and various challenges like that. They aren't really, really good. With the new map, weapons and gameplay mechanics, they're great. But for me, the visuals really pop. And this is because of the new Unreal Engine 5.1 upgrade. Now, Fortnite is stylized, but it is looking better than ever. So I'm playing on an Xbox Series X, but this one is a real and tangible upgrade that you literally have to see. Well, here's some of the new features of the Unreal Engine 5 that Fortnite is taking advantage of. So first of all, Nanite. This allows for very detailed geometry with millions of polygons, meaning every blade of grass and brick is modeled with a new system. For example, a single tree has 300,000 polygons. Well, next up we've got Lumen. This is the Unreal Engine 5 tool that works really well with ray-traced reflections. You can see this in the chrome on the vehicles, on weapons, and also on character skins themselves, even the water. Now, lighting looks new and improved, plus we've got more detailed interactions. Light bounces off surfaces and takes on characteristics. For example, you may get a hue from the reflecting colors. We've got temporal super resolution that improves visuals at higher frame rates. And we've got virtual shadow maps. So everything now has its own shadow, every leaf, elements of every skin, you know, literally everything in the game. Fortnite now looks like one of the best games out there. Now, it still looks like a living cartoon, especially with the anime skins in the game, which are an interesting mix of cell shaded and more traditional Fortnite character designs. We've also got new destruction effects and realistic fire effects. Epic are planning on releasing a flamethrower later in the season to demonstrate this fully. Well, that is a little sneak peek at all the latest updates in Fortnite Chapter 4. But next up, we are coming to the end of the Destiny 2 Witch Queen year. It's nearly the end of year 5, so I want to have a look back at the Witch Queen expansion and all the following seasons and have a look at Destiny 2 Witch Queen in review. We're only a few weeks now from Lightfall, the next major expansion from Bungie and Destiny 2, so now is a really good time to have a look back at the last 12 months and review the Witch Queen expansion. So we've got the highs, the lows, the state of PvE and PvP, plus also the seasons and the events as well. There's a whole load to get through today, so strap in, get cosy, and let's have a look back at the Witch Queen expansion in Destiny 2. Okay, without further delay, let's have a look at the Witch Queen itself. So the Witch Queen expansion launched in February 2022 after a fairly long delay and a whole load of expectation from the community. The Taken King was one of the most popular expansions in Destiny history and the preceding Destiny 2 expansion was Beyond Light, which while it was a step up over Shadowkeep, still didn't really hit the heights of Forsaken back in 2018 and 2019. Yeah, Bungie had got independent from Activision they were doing things their own way and expectations were high for the Witch Queen. And there was also loads of build-up related to Savathun. And that was building up for the last three years. Well, the Witch Queen expansion was great. You know, Bungie introduced legendary campaigns, which was a new implementation of difficulty in the game. And we've been so used to legend or master mode nightfalls or raids and more champions. But this was all scaled differently and it felt really, really good. Story was pretty good too, hitting all the major story beats, solving the mystery of how Savathun and Selective Hive Lightbearers acquired the light. You know, it was simply down to the Traveller chose them. We all thought it would be a case of Savathun stealing the light, but our expectations were turned on their head in a satisfying campaign, plus also a fitting end for Savathun. Well, alongside the campaign, we were introduced to our first light subclass rework in the form of Void. Over the course of the Witch Queen expansion, each subclass would get their 3.0 treatment, bringing them into line with Stasis, and Bungie started with a fan favourite. This introduced the Aspect and Fragment Model 2 Void, and we're definitely in a much better place with build crafting given the options that we have now. Bungie are doing some major reworking to the mods and build crafting systems coming in Lightfall, but the first light rework did feel like a success. 
Well, glaives, they were also introduced into the game, the first new weapon type since bows, and you could argue they were met with a mixed reaction. Now, they are versatile weapons, allowing players to stab, shoot projectiles, plus also block with shields as well. Now, they came out of the gate pretty hot, and we all got to craft our very own glaive in the opening level of the campaign, followed up with a fairly underwhelming exotic glaive post-campaign quest. So glaives did have to be drawn in later in the Witch Queen expansion in terms of power, but with Bungie preferring them to go into the game overpowered rather than underpowered. Crafting was another major addition in the Witch Queen. You know, Destiny 2 is all about the loot chase. We've had to rely on RNG since the dawn of time in this looter shooter. But now, by collecting a certain number of red border versions of the weapons and levelling them up, we'd be able to extract the patterns and various crafting materials. So I've kind of come round to the crafting system, although Bungie did have to rein in a number of crafting materials a few seasons into the Witch Queen, given it was very convoluted. So Destiny 2 is known for its materials and complex systems, but this was a step too far, and Bungie reduced the number of materials required and buffed the drop rates of the red border weapons season over season. Now, the Throne World was a great addition to the game. This was a swampy land infested with lucent and light-bearing hive. The Throne World had components of Mars, combinations of Destiny 1 Mars with an exotic mission Vox Obscura, and Destiny 2 Mars with the Heist Battlegrounds. We had the swamps, plus the underground caves of the Throne World, plus also Savathun's palace itself. The Hive Lightbearers were a good addition to the game, although beyond the expansion and the first season, we didn't really see them utilised very much at all, and that was slightly disappointing. We also had two new strikes including the Lightblade and Birthplace of the Vile. We saw the return of Alakul, this time renamed as the Lightblade rather than the Darkblade, a returning favourite character from Destiny 1. Now, all in all, the Witch Queen campaign and location were solid, and that leads us nicely into Season of the Risen. Well, seasons that accompany major expansions normally aren't great. Undying came with Shadowkeep, Hunt came with Beyond Light, and both didn't really hold up to regular seasons. This is understandable, given much of the effort is likely to go into the major expansions. Season of the Risen appeared to buck that trend with a decent season. So in terms of a brief summary for the story, we were working with the Cabal to study Hive Lightbearers to find out more about their plans now they've attained the light through Savathun. The main focal point of the season from a character development point of view was Crow, Lord Saladin and Keitel. Crow didn't like the fact that we were studying the Hive Lightbearers, but Saladin insisted sometimes in war that you have to do what needs to be done. The season ended with Lord Saladin leaving to join the Cabal which we would learn later he rose quickly through the ranks. We had a couple of activities in the season including Psyop Battlegrounds and also the Vox Obscura exotic mission. Psyop's Battleground had a few variations and saw us fighting inside the mines of Hive Lightbearers in an effort to study them. Vox Obscura was a repeatable exotic mission set on Mars from Destiny 1 and that included a fairly forgettable Dead Messenger exotic Wayframe Grenade Launcher. I say forgettable, I didn't really use it that much, but I know it is popular in PvP. Vox Obscura was okay. Probably the most exciting thing come out of it was the lore and the teasers for the year to come. You know, while it was better than other seasons that arrived with the expansions, it still didn't live up to the high standard of other seasons this year. Well, next up we've got Season of the Haunted. So Season of the Haunted came with much build-up, with Destiny writers claiming on Twitter... This was going to be a really, really good season. We saw the return of the Leviathan and Callus, plus the returning loot like Ostringer, Drang and Beloved. Their story focused on the mental state of Zavala, Keitel and Crow, with Eris leading the way. We had the introduction of the Duality Dungeon, which had to be one of the best dungeons that we've got in the game, albeit with quite a lot of bugs. Nightmare Containment was our activity, and this did get fairly repetitive over time, and by the end of the season... I think Destiny fans were glad not to be doing that anymore. We also saw the introduction of our second light subclass rework, and that was Solar 3.0. Well, next up we had Season of Plunder, so this one was all about Eremis, Drifter, Spider, Mithrax and Ido. We find out more about Mithrax's past, but Spider was smuggled back into the game with the help of Drifter. So that season we learned about the dangerous relics of darkness containing remains of a powerful being called Nezarak, who was the disciple of the Lunar Pyramid, the Elixir had been searching for these powerful relics, Eremis broke free from her frozen stasis prison and was a constant thorn in the side of Mithrax. Ido and Mithrax, they'd been studying the relics we collected throughout the season 
Although at the end of the season, it was all a little bit of an anti-climax, with the storyline related to Nezarek. Well, the final light subclass got its rework that season with Ark 3.0. I really, really enjoyed playing Ark that season. Titans came out very strong with the Storm Grenades, and I also really liked the Hunter's new Super. Warlocks kind of felt like they got the short end of the stick again, although, to be honest, I don't really mind, given I tend to play all three classes at the same time. We had a couple of seasonal activities, Catch Crash, Expeditions and Pirate Hideouts. Expeditions were probably my favourite of the three, and the Pirate Hideouts were a good way to reuse old Lost Sectors. Catch Crash got stale for me fairly quickly, even though Bungie were trying to recreate a Menagerie-style activity. So here was another place where the seasonal model was really showing its age, you know, going to the seasonal vendor, ranking up on that grid, seasonal challenges, you know, and repeating that seasonal activity. So overall, it was an interesting season. It all started out on such a high. You know, we launched on Epic Game Store, and there was loads of new players, and that dropped off quicker than most seasons. Community sentiment then soured, with many turning to Twitter, they were going to publicly proclaim they were cancelling their Lightfall pre-order. You know, that was a behaviour that I didn't really understand, and it all seemed like a big cry for attention. So compared to other seasons in The Witch Queen, this one felt like the weakest one so far. You know, given it's the middle season, that's probably okay. You don't really want a season like Plunder going into a major expansion. Well, finally, we've got this season, that is Season of the Seraph. This was a much-previewed storyline with Anna Bray and Rasputin coming back into the fold. Zivu Arath also takes a starring role, given she's trying to get hold of Rasputin's warsats and cause an extinction-level event on Earth. We've got to restore the warman Rasputin, given he was siphoned into an engram when the pyramid ships turned up in Season of Arrivals, and that was the season before Beyond Light. As well as the weekly narrative beats, we also got a great dungeon and exotic mission, and while the story is a little bit confusing... You know, it is very gripping as we lead into the main story of Lightfall. Well, this season we've got one seasonal activity, and that is Heist Battlegrounds. You know, it's been given a major upgrade in difficulty. We've got regular Heist Battlegrounds and Legend Heist Battlegrounds, which often feel like Nightfalls compared to Strikes in regards to the difficulty. Structure is pretty interesting as we start out in a battle in open space. So on somewhere like the Moon or Mars, then we open up a Seraph Bunker, Spelunk inside and defeat a few enemies, to delve further into the bunker and face off against a combination of Hive and Fallen. So it's definitely refreshing to have a single season activity to focus on, plus that difficulty is really, really nice and the loot is quite good too. Well, the dungeon is called Spire of the Watcher. This one is based on Mars near the Enclave. You know, much of the early feedback about the dungeon was it was short, the mechanics were simple and the bosses are bullet sponges. And while I do agree with the latter feedback about the bosses, I have come around to the mechanics, whereby we have to reconnect electrical cables throughout the play space. I also like the vertical nature of the dungeon, plus the loot is excellent. I still don't have my cowboy hat, although I do have all the other major armour. The Tex Mechanica loot is fantastic. We've got the new sidearm, that can roll Desperado. We've got the long arm, the legendary version of the DMT, and we also have that machine gun as well, so that's really, really good loot. The dungeon is also farmable, meaning you can go in time and time again if you're looking to get that full set of cowboy gear. Well, next we've got Operation Seraph Shield, and this one is an exotic mission. There's quite a lot of puzzles, but there's some big set pieces, and I think it's certainly one of the best exotic missions Bungie have put out in a long time. Vox Obscura was another exotic mission similar to this, although this one far exceeds Vox Obscura. This one does reuse some assets from the Deepstone Crypt, but personally I don't mind this too much as that is one of the best-looking environments we have in Destiny. Plus, you've got the individual moments, like going out in the space station, handing yourself into the Fallen, before running through the catch, all guns blazing. Well, then, at the end of the exotic mission, we've got the exotic pulse rifle, Revision Zero, which we can customise week over week with four catalysts. Then we've got zones and secrets to uncover within the mission itself. It may not hit the heights of a Whisper mission or Zero Hour, but this is by far the best exotic mission we've seen in the Beyond Light and the Witch Queen era Destiny. Okay, next up, I want to ask one simple question, and where are we leading into Lightfall? So PvE is probably in the best place it's ever been in the game. We're powerful, although we have to be mindful of power creep. Bungie's experiments with new difficulty scaling for activities is very interesting, in particular with Operation Serve Shield, and that feels like an experiment related to the legendary Witch Queen campaign. 
The story is great in Destiny at the moment. We've got a variety of raids, including the best raids from Destiny 1. The subclass reworks were much needed and well received, and we're in a much better place now with all the subclasses up to the same standard. You know, I still have a lot of fun in PvE content. Grandmasters keep me challenged, and I'm still chasing various loot drops from the dungeons and the raids. PvP, on the other hand, is not in a good place. Bungie did some experimentation in control with SBMM. They had to go back on that and implement loose SBMM. This seemed to work well for new or low-skilled players and made the experience much worse for the high-skilled players. You know, SBMM in control is strange, given control is somewhere to hang out in Crucible, and it's supposed to be the casual playlist. And this made it anything but casual. Well, Iron Banner introduced new game modes called Eruption and Fortress, and that seemed to go down much better in the community compared to New Rift. Trials introduced a couple of new weapons, and ironically Trials seems to be the most casual playlist right now. In Season of the Seraph, we've seen a major rework for competitive PvP, with the introduction of the competitive division and a ranked playlist. Now, I have seen a lot of negative feedback concerning new competitive, however, personally, I quite like it. In terms of loot to chase, we've got Rose, a 140 hand cannon, reissued from Destiny's past. You know, once you complete your placement matches, seven regular matches of comp, you get a static roll of Rose. Then week over week, you can complete three more matches to get a random rolled version of Rose. And this gun has some really, really excellent perks. You can't really go wrong when it comes to getting that hand cannon. The problem with competitive at the moment, though, is there really isn't an incentive to keep playing. There's no unique cosmetics for comp, and you can't really show off your rank in-game. You know, these are basic design flaws that are going to turn players off. Bungie may be laying the groundwork for further competitive rework features in the future, like adding more loot and cosmetics, but I've heard plenty of feedback from top-tier players that really this is not it. In fact, many PvP players are questioning their place in the Destiny 2 ecosystem, and that is unfortunate. Well, finally, let's have a look at the core playlist. So the core playlist in Destiny 2 definitely needs some love, and I'm talking about Vanguard Ops, or Strikes, Crucible, and Gambit. While the seasonal model is getting stale, at least it's varied, but more often than not, you have to go into the same core playlist and grind out currencies. The core playlists for Destiny 2 have largely stayed the same, or content has been cut due to sunsetting with Beyond Light. So Strikes, Crucible Maps, Gambit Maps, all have been removed, leaving those core playlists pretty repetitive. Some improvements have been made recently with streaks and weapons, getting more perks as you level up your vendor. However, we need more content in these playlists. Battlegrounds were added to Vanguard Ops, which was a good move, but we need more strikes. We've got a wealth of Destiny 1 strikes to call upon, but even better than that would be new strikes on Europa, Savathun's Throne World, and the Dreaming City. So when we get a new expansion, it'd be great to get more than two strikes, and in Beyond Light, we only got one. Strikes could also be harder, and we could also have strike modifiers, much like we had during Guardian Games, and hopefully this gets rolled out in the future. The legendary campaign was a great success in The Witch Queen, and it'd be great to see all new strikes get a legendary mode to go with it. Crucible, on the other hand, needs a lot of work, you know, new maps, new modes, that's just a starting point. Experimenting in Trials of Osiris seems fairly successful, and the transparent data from that exercise was great, and hopefully we're going to see more of that. You know, Gambit feels like it's already been set to one side, we've got so few maps there now, so returning old maps would be a great start. But also, I'd love to see return from the ideas from Gambit Prime. Honestly, it feels like Bungie have tried to breathe new life into Gambit so many times, but perhaps it's time to cut and run with Drifter's game mode. Well, that is it for my review of Destiny 2 Witch Queen and the seasons and year 5 as a whole. And I would love to hear what you think. Let me know on patreon.com forward slash this week in video games. Let me know on Twitter at TWIVG Podcast. And if you're watching over there on YouTube, let me know down in the comments. Well, that is it for this review of Destiny 2's Witch Queen expansion, the seasons and year 5. Next, let's have a look what we've got coming out in the next few weeks. Okay, on the 30th of January, we've got Power Wash Simulator coming to PlayStation 5, PlayStation 4, and Nintendo Switch. Also on the 30th, we've got Trek 2 Yomi, that's coming to Nintendo Switch. Then on the 31st of January, we've got a few games, that Age of Empires 2, Definitive Edition, Xbox Series S and X and Xbox One. 
We got Inclinati, and that is Xbox Series S, Xbox One, Switch, and PC. Also coming to Game Pass, we've got Season, A Letter to the Future, PS5, PS4, and PC. We've got SpongeBob SquarePants, The Cosmic Shake, PS4, Xbox One, Switch, and PC. Then going into February, on February the 2nd, we've got Chef Life, a restaurant simulator, PS5, Xbox Series S, and X, PS4, Xbox One, Switch, and PC. We've got Deliver Us Mars, that's PS5, Xbox Series S, and X, PS4, Xbox One, and PC. Also on the 2nd of February, Life is Strange 2, that's coming to Nintendo Switch. And we've got Tales, The Backbone Preludes, that one is coming to PC. The Pathless is coming to Xbox Series S and X, Xbox One and Switch, that is on the 2nd of February. And then we've got Endling, Extinction is Forever, that is coming to iOS and Android. Finally, we've got a big one, it's Hogwarts Legacy, that is coming to PlayStation 5, Xbox Series S and X, and also PC as well. That one is coming on February the 10th. Well, that is it for this week's episode. And if you want to get involved in the show, get in contact through patreon.com forward slash this week in video games or check out the latest on the website. You can also send in an email at podcast at this week in video You can contact me on Twitter at TWIVG podcast or you can comment in the comments on this video. Well, if you enjoyed this podcast or found it useful, liking and sharing it would really, really help me out. Otherwise, you can check out the other podcasts in the feed. Well, thanks again. And I'll see you soon.